This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. This week, how we can't seem to get enough of sporting and outdoor goods. Hear what's flying off the shelves at Academy Sports and Outdoors from the company's CEO. Plus, we talked to Dr. Rachel Dew, the co-founder of Modi Health, on how her company changed during the pandemic. Also, Tim, we get a fascinating tale on the life cycle of a pair of jeans. You're wearing jeans? Not right now, but I do every day. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, that pair of jeans, when you are wearing them, goes through a lot. We'll get the story from the author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. And later on, Margaritaville in Times Square. Jimmy Buffett's laid-back state of mind finding a home in the heart of Manhattan. Margaritaville and New York. As a performing musician, New York is probably the hardest market to ever crack as a live performer. But I broke through, and uh, I did it with a lot of hard work and a lot of inspiration from other people. I had to just look at it as this, it's an island. And I've (laughs) I've been an island boy for a long time. It's a little different island, so I gotta figure out how to get these islanders to figure out what those other islanders like about what I do. For more on that story and an overview of our latest issue, let's bring in the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. Joel, we'll go inside this unusual attraction in just a moment, but I want to start on a more serious note. This week, a Senate report is blaming intelligence and security failures for the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, and a group of online sleuths is helping to ID some of those who took part. That story in the politics section. That's right. They call themselves the Sedition Hunters, and it's really a total amateur network who, following the January 6th insurrection, turned the Internet into basically a a manhunt in an attempt to find some of the people who were perpetrators. And they've been successful, um, but they've also not been successful. What motivates them, Joel? It's really a quest for justice. And and when you think about the historical precedent for something like this, like I, I was fascinated by this. This idea that, you know, when when JFK was assassinated, uh, there was really just one piece of footage that, uh, you know, millions of people spent decades poring over. This time, because of the amount of cameras and footage and everything that we that we have at, at our availability, it's it's a mountain of options for everyone to sleuth through. All right, Joel, so let's get to a story now in the feature section. President Trump, he's been kind of quiet until last weekend. Uh, He did make a speech in North Carolina. So let's talk about his life uh, post-White House. It's a little bit different from other past presidents. Well, Mar-a-Lago is really uh, the center of that. And it's almost like a a, a retreat, a winter retreat, if you will. And and granted, he's now in New Jersey at, at his home in Bedminster. But what Josh really, Josh Green, uh, who wrote the story, really writes about here is that uh, Mar-a-Lago is basically the center of an alternative universe for GOP hardliners who are in favor of Trump and his presidency. And it's really uh, the center of its own universe. And it has had a gravitational pull on really a lot of the, the heavyweights within the Trump orbit. So center of certainly, he is the center of attention, I should say, down there in Mar-a-Lago when he's down there in Florida specifically. But I do wonder about his grasp on the Republican Party. Is he the center of the Republican Party right now? Yeah, and that's really become what's clear. And we've seen that just within the last 
uh, weeks and months as the the hold on the party is very much still in his hands. Um, they, it's it, it, and that's been the draw to Florida is that there's one of the one of the sources that Josh got this amazing quote from was as long as the fish are still biting, you don't take your your lure out of the water, right? And this is a sense that from from fundraising, from even just being uh, shouldering up to the former president, to do all of that stuff, you have to be in South Florida uh, near him. And that has created like th this um, sticky quality of being down there too, whereas a lot of people would usually be leaving now. It, South Florida has become this, this little universe of, for the GOP. All right, we've got to talk to us about a story in the finance section. FOMO, big time, whether it's something Elon Musk is tweeting about or a meme stock or buying a house at this point, there's an incredible fear of missing out right now. Yeah, so Lionel Lauren uh, wrote this story, and, and it really, I think, helps sum up not only multiple stories in the issue, but just the zeitgeist that I think um, many investors feel right now. I mean, we have some of the most prominent investors in the world, professional investors in the world, saying that they're even feeling like they've been missing out on stuff. And, and just as a, as a normal <laughs> person who's like goes to the playground with his son and it's like, I'm getting tons of uh, inquiries and, and people pitching different stuff. And it just feels like it's, one, it's this cacophony of alternative things that are suddenly uh, captivating us. And as a society. And, and I, I, I thought Lionel did a, a really good job of pulling that together, whether it's meme stocks or housing, you, you name it. It's trading cards. It's like it's all over the place. Well, back to our cover story now, Joel. And usually when the name Buffett is uttered on Bloomberg, we're not talking. We're talking about Warren, but not this time. <laughs> we are talking about Jimmy Buffett, Joel. Uh, Margaritaville Enterprises is just a massive, massive company. What's with the latest project happening right here in New York City? Well, you hit it right. This is the other Buffett. And uh, Jimmy Buffett basically had a song, Margaritaville, that inspired uh, a business empire. And it's really never been written about how Parrot Heads, um, uh, his followers, <laughs> it's this cult following. And now he's basically conquered New York, which has long been, even as a musician, it was uh, a tip that somebody told him is like, you gotta be able to conquer New York. And so now years later, here he is with this $370 million hotel that's just opening in New York as New York reopens its, its own economy. The perfect symbol for uh, getting things back to normal. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett being back here in <laughs> New York City. Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Coming up as summer approaches, one sporting goods company is having trouble keeping up with the demand of tents. Everybody wants to get outside. I love <laughs> yes. it. Me too. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Academy Sports and Outdoors, Tim, they went public back in October. It's up about 200% from its IPO. The KKR-backed company, it has certainly seen its stock on a tear this year alone, nearly doubling. And Academy reported earnings this week, raising its forecast for its fiscal year, despite some ongoing issues tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's right. They laid it out in their financial filing. Ken Hicks is chairman, president, and CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. He's also former chairman and CEO of Foot Locker. And Ken began with an update on Academy's business. We are we're obviously seeing some very strong business. Uh, uh, we're, you know, reported sales up uh, 
almost 39 percent and and very strong profits and we've up our estimate for the year to between uh, six and nine percent. Uh, and our, what we're seeing is the customer uh, who found the new hobby, found fishing or camping, riding bikes, uh, built their home gym, is coming back and buying more. And so people who got into the outdoors uh, or into a sport are really continuing with that. Well, that's interesting. And, and your supply chain, you guys have had no problem meeting everything that you needed to? Well, no, the supply, <laughs> chain, the supply chain is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we never closed during COVID and we were able to stay open. And that allowed us to be able to order goods and see what was happening. And so I'd say we're a little bit ahead of some of the others. And, and our team is just doing a terrific job uh getting the merchandise through, but it, it is not easy. So and we still, we still have some inventory issues in some areas, but overall it's at an acceptable level. Is it getting easier? Are you seeing things, you know, kind of lighten up in terms of the supply chain getting more, you know, normal, if I can no, say? No, no. I, okay. I, I think we're going to see this through the, hmm. through the remainder of the year. How does it make you change your thinking about how you want your supply chain to work going forward? Well, we actually uh, have a, a major study underway right now, and we're going to take some significant uh, actions to improve our supply chain going forward to really make it more flexible and and more up to date. Uh, we, you know, it it works okay, but uh, it, we're going to yeah. need as we grow a much stronger supply chain. What does that mean, though, Ken? Does that mean more stuff in your backyard uh, to where you're selling? What does it mean? Because I'm assuming I, it, most of your your sales are. Help me out here. Remind me. Is it mostly North America, U.S.? Uh, all of our sales are U.S. We're yeah. in the, the south central part of the United States. And, you know, the thing, better systems, better processes. Uh, you know, we've got the infrastructure in terms of buildings. Uh, but what we need now are uh, better processes and systems to be able to track and flow the goods through the system faster and more accurately and keep keep a better eye on it. So it's not necessarily manufacturing, bringing manufacturing back home to the U.S. You just need systems that can track it. I think of always the Apple model where I could buy a phone and I could tell where it was at every step of the, you yes. know, the stages. That's what you're looking to do. Yeah, Carol, yeah. you're right on. Hey, listen, in the, um, Ken, in the corporate uh, earnings release, you guys noted there, and here's a direct quote, there is still economic uncertainty from the impact of COVID-19 and other external factors. Is that the supply chain or, or something else? I would say just it's the supply chain is, is part of it, but also, you know, uh, people are still uh, trying to find their way in what they do. Mm -hmm. in, in our markets, a lot of people have been out for a while, but, you know, how will people spend their money uh, and how long people will continue with some of the hobbies and habits that they've got? We're seeing that they're continuing, but as people go out to eat more, go on vacations and things, uh, you know that there's a there's always a risk of of how much money they have to spend on 
on other adventures. Right. The wallet is just so wide. <laughs> and so you make choices. Or, or as most people would say, so thin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Especially if you've got a kid in college. Hey, listen, one thing I want to ask you, your stock is nearly 20% or it is 20% shorted uh, the float as a uh, percentage, excuse me, of the float. I know CEOs don't like to talk about their stock price, but in the world of meme stocks where high short positions get the attention of the retail Reddit investor crowd, are you a little concerned about getting caught up in that? Not really, because the the I think the lift we we saw today and we've seen so far is based on the performance that we had, and and unlike some of the other stocks that you you're referring to, they don't have the underlying foundation of a good solid business. We do. We've got sales growth, we've got profit growth, and we have opportunities for uh, you know expansion online and in other markets that a lot of other people don't have. So we've got that solid foundation to continue to grow. Yeah. And I think that's what will allow us to weather through some of the challenges that other other stocks have seen. Ken, really quickly, 20 seconds, one item that's just flying off the shelves right now. Uh, tents. Tents. People, people are camping like crazy. Tents flying off the shelves. Everybody <laughs> wants to go camping this summer. Listen, I spent a lot of time in the last week or so now that the weather is better outside, and I get it. I've kind of forgotten we've had a pandemic. I haven't had a mask on uh, from the minute I get up, from the minute I go to bed. Uh, it's a different experience. Yeah, outdoors way better than indoors any day of the week. Ken Hicks is chairman, president, and CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, a holistic approach to health. And later on our cover story on the pirate taking on new york city jimmy buffett's margaritaville and its new attraction in times square can't say it enough but it's five o'clock somewhere well margaritaville is kind of an enigma (laughs) something that i never envisioned happening when i wrote that song in about five minutes on the seven mile bridge it just goes to show you that anything can happen in america That story still to come. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, the health of Americans has really been in the spotlight, yes, because of the pandemic, but also because of uh, comorbidities during this health crisis. And we're now looking at our health, not just our physical well-being, but also our well-being. Everything matters. Yeah, it's that holistic approach to medicine and health that Dr. Eva Du focuses on. She's the co-founder of Modi Health. It's a platform that offers both live telemedicine and telewellness consultations, as well as an on-demand health and wellness streaming service. Here's Dr. Dew. We've seen a dramatic increase of users and patients on our platform. Obviously, during the pandemic, when things were shut down and people were staying in, having access to virtual care as well as virtual health and well-being support was critically important. So the pandemic has really um, skyrocketed us and really expanded our, our platform significantly over the last 14 months. Dr. Du, are you offering vaccinations? No, we're not. We're a truly virtual Truly, 100%. I mean, not even hybrid. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So 
we are a virtual platform that offers virtual care with every type of practitioner you could possibly want. So you can really get a holistic approach, everything from traditional primary care to mental health to complementary alternative life coaches, nutrition, as well as a streaming service and health memberships that allow a holistic approach to getting the support, guidance, and tools you need. I'm, I'm really curious about the holistic approach because one thing that the pandemic has done among the many things is it's, it's shown us the disparities uh, between many different types of people in the U.S. and around the world. And indeed, we've seen those with comorbidities suffer worse fates when they do get sick with coronavirus. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the way that you perhaps think that we may start to actually think differently about taking a holistic approach to medicine on the other side of the pandemic. It's such a critically important issue right now. You're absolutely right. People are really looking at their health from a different perspective. You know, what we're seeing at Modi Health and really within the industry of health and well-being care is a higher level of interest and attention to preventative health and wellness, including mental health. And the pandemic's really created a significant amount of stress and emotional strain on so many who are now also in need of mental and emotional health support. And you're completely correct when you're talking about the need for a holistic approach, more inclusive um, abilities and access to people of all different backgrounds. And that's one of the reasons why a virtual health platform is such such a timely and important need right now within the industry. So having virtual access really does create more accessibility to people, being able, no matter what type of income level or background that you are, being able to have access to whole person care to really optimize your health and well-being, not only during the era of COVID, decreasing risk of getting COVID or becoming extremely ill from COVID, but also on the other side of the pandemic to really optimize your health and well-being so that you can experience health, wellness, and really thrive as a human being is so important. But there is still this technological gap between many people in the United States. And we saw that really play out when it came to the way that people were scheduling and given access to vaccines. There were many people in the U.S. who didn't necessarily have the technological know-how in order to schedule those appointments. And I'm wondering how you account for that with a, a, a telemedicine service. Unfortunately, you know, a system that was rolled out very quickly, it was an emergency um, you know, response. And so it wasn't necessarily set up in the most um, accessible way to those who were elderly or those who didn't have access to a computer or a, a smartphone, for example. So when it comes to platforms like ours, um, really all you need is internet access and it's as simple and easy to use as something like a Facebook, right? So being able, when it comes to health technology, to make it more accessible it's not only about having access to the physical platform, right? So that's Mm -hmm. internet connectivity. But you really have to be designing the user experience for people of all different technology levels and skills. That's Dr. Rachel Eva Du. She's the co-founder of Modi Health. And listen, we've had these conversations a lot over the past year or so. And just talking about holistic health 
it had some momentum pre-pandemic, Tim, but definitely has picked up a lot of speed. And this whole idea of the digitization of our world has also picked up speed, and that includes finally in medicine. And I think, as we hear from these medical professionals, telemedicine, it's here to stay. It is. And even beyond that, Carol, I think it made a lot of people rethink their own priorities in life and what they wanted to be doing. And this holistic approach to health, it not mm-hmm. only includes physical health, but it includes mental health, the mental state, and how you're feeling about things. How many meditation apps do you have on your phone? Yeah, how many do I use? That's the question. <laughs> That's true. I've several. I don't always use them as much as I should. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, we're looking at the life cycle of a pair of jeans. Gotta tell you, it goes around the world. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We've talked about this a lot, the fashion and retail industry's impact on the environment. And Tim, there's a new book out. It looks into this. It's entitled Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. It's by Maxine Beda, founder and director of the think tank New Standard Institute, which describes itself as a think and do tank using data and the power of citizens to turn the fashion industry into a force for good. And prior to running NSI, she co-founded and was the CEO of Zadie. It's a fashion brand and lifestyle destination. It's got the goal of creating a transparent and sustainable future for the apparel industry. But let's get back to her book because it is called Unraveled. And Tim, it truly follows the life cycle of a pair of jeans. You know about that, right? Yeah, it involves so many resources. The book charts the story of a pair of jeans. It starts in a cotton field in West Texas. It travels to um, then China to see where that cotton is turned into a textile. Then it goes from... Um, China to Bangladesh, where that textile is cut and sewn into a garment, um, and then travels back to the United States to the distribution centers, the the Amazon facilities, where I got the opportunity to speak to the um, workers there as well. Um, and then it it um, I spoke to a lot of shoppers, understanding their relationship to clothing, why they're buying the clothes. Um, and after this brief stop in um, a shopper's closet, the the clothes are donated or are thrown out. And then um, the book uh, follows that along um, to Ghana, where the secondhand market um, of clothing uh, is significant. um, And the landfills there where a lot of our clothing actually ends up. I don't know how you feel, but the pandemic has made me kind of rethink a lot of things in my life. And that includes stuff. I grew up with a mom who was like, by quality, you don't need a lot of stuff. You just need good stuff, you know, and think, be thoughtful. We've really evolved into a consumption society where, you know, and we talk a lot about fast fashion. You wear it a couple times, it was inexpensive, you toss it out. Um, what was the most disturbing thing or things that you found out in doing this book? Yeah, I think it's, it's really the, the speed, um, the accumulation um, you know, the, the scale of the industry and where, where it's leaving workers. And workers not, you know, workers in women in Bangladesh and, and women make up a, um, a large percentage of the garment workers uh, globally and also the, the workers domestically. Um, you know, we not, tend not to think about Amazon as a fashion company, but it is the largest online apparel retailer um, in terms of number of shoppers. In the book, you know, I, I got to go to China um, mm-hmm. and, and see these rivers that are black. And then I went to Bangladesh and the rivers became even more black. And Ghana at the end, which was 
um, you know, the, the, the most black rivers, you got to actually see, I was able to see the impact that our clothing has. And that's something that is such a huge shift from even a generation ago, because in the 1960s, mm-hmm. 95% of clothing that Americans wore was American made. Right. Today, that's less than 2%. So we don't see the impact that our clothing has, um, but yet it's enormous. And the rivers are black. I'm assuming it's runoff from the manufacturing and dyes or what have you. Yes, exactly. Maxine, you know, sometimes we talk about the food industry. There's been books before over the, you know, past few decades that if you really knew what was in certain foods, you probably wouldn't eat it. And I do wonder how much of what we wear, if we really understood the process of it, you know, ultimately ending up in our closet, how many of us would say, you know what, I don't want it. Yeah, I think it, would, it definitely, I mean, going through this process has changed my relationship to clothing for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I, I see the work that goes into it. I see the, the, the resources and the environmental impact that it has. Um, and so I've, I've definitely changed the relationship to my own wardrobe. But it hasn't been one of, um, you know, that I try to resist ever, ever buying anything. It's actually been a very positive experience. I realize, you know, I don't have to jump on that trend that's kind of being pushed on me. I can, you know, really love my clothes. And so, you know, that's that's a message that I'm trying to get across is if we actually move to a relationship where we, you know, deeply love our things, we will end up wearing them more. Um, and that is actually the biggest driver of the reduction in resources is just Right. Uh, increasing the use of our clothing. I've got a teenager who definitely looks at kind of what a company stands for and their impact on the environment. You're seeing increasingly certainly kind of startup companies and even some of the major companies really look at their impact at the environment and figuring out how to do it better. How hard is it though to do it better, to manufacture it, to reduce the impact on, on the environment? How difficult is it really? Yeah, I think what we have to recognize is, you know, as you, as you were saying, it, uh, it's the young generation that is really understanding, you know, the environmental crisis in which we find ourselves in. Um, and so they're the ones that are really pushing for this change. But we're, we're at this place right now where the industry is responding with, um, you know, quite a lot of uh, marketing around sustainability, but we're not seeing a lot of disclosures. Um, you talk about financial disclosures, but in, environmental disclosures mm-hmm. that are clear, that are, you know, apples to apples comparison. So it's very hard for consumers to be able to understand what is a company that is, you know, doing real work and, and what is kind of greenwashing along the way. Right, right. And we we have this similar conversation when it comes to diversity and inclusion, right? There's a lot of conversations going on at once again, and, and it's, you know, taking the words and turning them into action so that there are change. I guess my question is, though, can we easily or can we make the changes, the necessary changes, so that there aren't workers who are basically, um, you know, kind of in a prison cell manufacturing the sweater that I'm wearing or the jeans that I'm wearing? Is there ways to do it so that the dyes aren't running off into the water in developing markets? Can we do it in an affordable way? Because I remember a conversation years ago with someone who said, listen, we can do it in a better way, but are you ready to pay 70 bucks for that t-shirt? You know, so can we do it basically is the question. 
the answer, the, the simple answer is yes. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't take new technology to improve the energy, energy efficiency in mills and to switch over to alternative energies um, um, at the mills. And I talk about the mills because that's really the um, ground zero when we talk about um, energy and climate emissions um, and chemical emissions is at that phase where you're turning the, the fiber into a textile. So it really, this, this is possible, and, and the researchers who are um, focused on ESG, who've been looking in terms of the labor side, um, have also said as well that it wouldn't mean a $70 T-shirt. In fact, it would be something like 15 additional cents. And that's even really? assuming that, wow. yes, that the cost would be absorbed you know, by, the, by the consumer, not the company itself. How do we move the mark? How do we do it? Or who has to so do it within the industry? Yeah, so that's the work that we're, you know, focusing in on New Standard Institute now is we need to move to a place that is beyond this kind of marketing talk, beyond the talk. Um, we need to have very clear disclosures um, around the uh, total environmental impact, actual disclosures around wages, and that's the way that we can be able to kind of move from the race to the bottom to a race to the top. And so that's the kind of policy that we're pushing um, trying to advance at NSI is, is a place that we can have a level playing field um, and make the progress we, we need to make in the time frame that we need to make it. What is the time frame, realistically, that we can make these changes? Well, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, what, it's, <laughs> it's always the tough part, to, right? No, we find part. it with climate change, right? People put out goals and they're like, okay, we're going to be carbon neutral or have a zero carbon impact, but we're going to do it, you know, 20 years from now. I mean, it's exactly. like... It's a, it seems and like a long time because a lot of damage is done in the, in the interim. Exactly. And, and I think that even the bigger problem is that the executives who are, you know, making those commitments are likely not going to be there at that time. So, you know, that's why if we, if we move, if we keep those targets but move to disclosures right now, we're, we're creating the right incent, incentives, you know, within the C-suite to actually make the progress right now and not kick the can. And, and it isn't, this isn't, you know, as I said, it's rocket science. Um, you know, the people who are doing this work, you know, it ends up uh, a lot of it being cost saving because it's about energy efficiency. Um, so this is very possible. It's about getting right. companies to work together on their facilities, um, but it is highly doable. We just have to create the, the will to make it happen. Is there one company that you point out as saying, listen, this company has really been bad in terms of, you know, fast fashion, if you will, or just, you know, we want something, we get it quickly, and we think about consumption differently. Just got about 30, 40 seconds left. Yeah, I mean, I think any of those um, companies, their what their business model is getting us to buy something and wear it uh, once. Yeah. And there is just, a, you know, women, you know, are, are there are the surveys that are finding that women are seeing that their clothing feels old after wearing it only once. That type of model that we need to kind of move away from. That's Maxine Beta, author of the new book Unraveled, and just talking about, you know, starting from the cotton fields in essentially the United States and just being manufactured overseas and then ending up in a junk pile, ultimately. You know, I was thinking about this. It's it's like what we think about when it comes to food. Mm-hmm. And the conversation has changed around food and where your food comes from. I think increasingly people are going to start thinking the same way about their garments. Well, you and I have had this conversation just this past week about we just take certain things for granted. Yeah. And then when you start to break it down, whether it's when we can't access websites, we're like, oh, wait, how does it actually happen? And then you understand some of the vulnerable points or some of the impacts it has kind of on our world. Hey, we're all connected. Yeah, exactly. Well, that wraps up the first hour of 
the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevet. Coming up in our next hour, how AMC became the people's stock by not being a GameStop remake. Plus, wasting away in Times Square, we hear from <laughs> Mr. Margaritaville himself. We're talking about Jimmy Buffett. It is this week's cover story. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including the president of the Client Solutions Group over at Dell Technologies. Tim, on whether we are continuing to use more PCs, laptops, and tablets as we increasingly move to the other side of the pandemic, and some of us getting away from working from home, some of us still staying there. Well, speaking of what's going to happen in the future, we're also going to speak with Jamie Metzl, technology futurist, on a new fund in town, tracking the biology revolution. Plus, the Margaritaville lifestyle, courtesy of Jimmy Buffett, and cultivated and followed by his disciples of parrot heads. You know who you are. <laughs> it's all now coming to New York's Times Square. So to have a Margaritaville in Times Square and having had the Broadway experience, this is kind of the icing on the cake to take in New York to tell you the truth. <laughs> First up this hour, though, this is a voice we've checked in with several times throughout the pandemic. Yeah, we've asked him about things such as everyone moving to Austin, IT spending, and the demand or the death of the PC. Well, Sam Bird joined us again. He is president of the Client Solutions Group over at Dell Technologies. He's responsible for Dell's commercial and consumer client portfolio. That includes notebooks, desktops, workstations, tablets, and software. Basically, Tim, a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, like we do right now, we began by asking how he's doing and how things have changed since the last time we spoke back in December. Yeah, since since we talked, we we talked about some of the demand we saw in the PC industry and the space uh, that my business operates for Dell, and you know we we saw we closed out the year as we thought with really strong demand. Carol, the industry had shipped 302 million units last year, which was a uh, a record in the past six years. And then you know since that point in time, we've seen really strong continued demand in my space. So. Just ended our first quarter, had 20% revenue growth in our business, a record for Q1, and um, continued strong profitability in the business. What is it specifically? I love when we can drill down with someone like you. You know, is it notebooks? Is it desktops? Is it workstations? Is it PC? Like, you and I have talked about the death of the PC for a long time. Um, what is it, though, that really kind of ramped up? Yeah, well, we saw, and, and you know, last time we talked a little bit about, we, we joked about the death of the PC and then seeing the PC really become an important um, tool for people in the, in the past year, critical whether you were doing work from home, learning from home, just trying to, you know, get a kind of escape valve and entertain yourself. It all now comes to us in our home. Uh, on our PC. So it's a really important tool for people to have. Mm -hmm. It's a great friend. It's a great asset. And we, we've seen growth, Carol, in all different spaces. So we continue to see demand in the consumer space as people move to more of a one-to-one -one kind of computing model of I, I need my, when I'm at home, I need my PC to be able to do my stuff on my PC. Uh, we're seeing the commercial space grow. We're seeing notebooks grow. And then interestingly, in the the last quarter or so, I've seen. I've, I would say we have seen a uh, resurgence in in demand around uh, desktops, 
We've mm. still seen a, a market that has shifted more to people wanting notebooks and mobile computing, but um, desktops that were shrinking a lot last year and mobile was hyper-growing, we're now seeing growth in the desktop space as well. So desktop, I'm assuming you mean like in the business commercial space, correct? Yeah, we see it in the business commercial space. We see also see it at home. Like people yeah, use it at okay. home for, for gaming or for maybe it's just a great system that I keep in one place and archive a lot of my data on. Yeah. Listen, I always thought, you know, I remember growing up and I think getting like the first calculator and it's like, that was a calculator for the family. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just, we've really evolved to everybody has their phone. Everybody has a laptop. Everybody and, or, or might also have a desktop. I mean, it, there really is this, this whole idea of this one-to-one commuting model, computing model, excuse me. Uh, you really do see it evolving, especially after a year like this past year. Oh, I think that's exactly right, uh, Carol. We, we joke and call it the, you know, do anything from from anywhere world. And Mm -hmm. the reality is to make that happen, and you can do that today, and people are doing that today, they will do that in the future. Technology plays a huge part in that. And whether it's a, you know, a home and a one-to-one environment, or think about, you know, businesses, and it used to be technology and PCs were like the domain of the IT department. Right. It's now everywhere in the company. It's, you know, the technology you're putting in someone's hands, it matters when they decide to take the job. Uh, line of business leaders in a company care about that technology because it helps their, you know, their team be more productive, more innovative, do great things for their customers. So it really is that kind of world you described. It's, it's, uh, you know, changed from the one for a lot of people to everyone needs their own. And it needs to be a really Right. You know, great tool. I hear a lot of optimism. What about the supply chain and being able to get the components, chips and the like that you need to kind of keep this momentum going? You know, we, you know, we definitely uh, are working uh, around getting those parts. We have a world-class supply chain. But when you look at the way the global economy has improved, Carol, and mm-hmm. there's, a, there, there's a greater demand for everything, including PCs, uh, with the growth we expect this year, there's a shortage out there of semiconductors. So we are operating in that environment. We've operated with some shortages in our industry for the past three years and been successful. And uh, we think we have a team and a forecast and a, an approach that will get us, uh, you know, the parts that we need. We're definitely in a challenged supply world. That was Sam Bird, president of the Client Solutions Group at Dell Technologies. Coming up, how AMC became the people stock by not being a GameStop remake. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The day doesn't seem to go by without us talking a little bit about the meme stock of the day from Hertz to GameStop to AMC and even most recently, Wendy's. I was just going to say, it continues on. One story reported for Business Week is about how AMC became the people's stock by not being a GameStop remake. Filling us in is Bloomberg News high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy reporter Kat Doherty and Business Week editor Jill Weber. When we were thinking about um, what an interesting take on it would be, um, Kat and her uh, co-author Brandon Kochkoden kind of hit on something that I thought was was particularly interesting, which is actually it's almost like AMC learned from GameStop <laughs> in real time from earlier this year and was able to sort of have a slightly different response that might make a world of difference for them. Uh, so, Kat, talk to us about that. What, what's different about this meme stock than uh, you know the the mania that we saw earlier this year? So, there's two main differences that we point out in our piece. The first is 
the company AMC leaning into uh, the enthusiasm from all of its investors and from the the Reddit crowd that is out there um, and making trends on Twitter and hashtags AMC Army. They're communicating directly with those people, and they're offering perks like free large popcorns in a movie when you sign up and you are an investor with AMC. We saw the exact opposite with GameStop when its shares were surging and it was trending online and on social media. Management didn't acknowledge or communicate with that crowd in the same way. Now, what AMC has done is it's taken that enthusiasm and it's issued new shares this week. And every time that it's doing that, sure, it's diluting the existing shareholders, but for everyone involved, for all shareholders um, and debt holders, that means more cash on the balance sheet. And this is a company that has deferred rent payments coming due. They do have very high coupon payments on their debt. So when the interest payments are coming. They need cash to pay that. And so every time that they have announced these equity sales uh, or issuing new shares, that is just more cash that the company can use and and prosper into the future. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. First of all, I can't imagine like a company going to a big institutional investor or pension fund saying, hey, we're going to throw some popcorn your way or something like it just wouldn't work. But it's different. This kind of retail investor militia um, cat that's out there. And it is interesting to see the CEO kind of playing to them directly. Exactly. Um, we, in our story, reference this TikTok video um, that I think captures this sentiment perfectly. It's uh, a young millennial that walks into an AMC and the cashier asks him, does he need anything? And he says, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm just checking on the theaters. And the cashier looks back and he says, well, what, do you work here? And his answer is, no, but I'm a part owner or I'm, I'm, one of, I'm the money, he says. And I think that that sentiment is... is it's hilarious, um, and in, a, in an entertaining way, it really depicts what's going on here. You have these investors, and a lot of them, they're popping on uh, threads, and they're talking about experiences at AMC or wanting to save AMC. There's some personal connection um, that we're seeing here. And you saw that, too, with a company like Hertz, uh, when people were jumping into that name and they recognize the brand, they recognize the name. Some of these meme stocks, they have that similarity, that similar thread running through yeah. where there are people that have engaged with these companies. You know, Joel, we're in a different world here. Well, what I love about it is like it, it, it kind of can inspire uh, those of us who maybe don't own AMC to like, I, I'm just going to look through my portfolio this weekend and decide, you know, what, what am I a part owner of that I'm going to go kind of like show up and say I'm a part owner of. Um, but, but it, you know, in seriousness, Kat, um, like I'm, I'm drawn to this idea that there is a change in even what it means to be a CEO because of this. And that, you know, you we could potentially see you know, executives interacting with with investors, small time investors in a, in a completely different way going forward. Is, do you feel like there's is this um, sort of a canary in the coal mine? Are we going to see more stuff like this going forward? It's a great question and something that we're definitely tracking because we haven't had any moment in time to compare it to. This is such a unique, um, these are unique circumstances that are popping up because of 
everything that's come before. So you have the pandemic, people at home, people engaging on social media. I think social, me- that social media was there even beforehand, but this is like a, a, an extreme. This is kind of the next level. And I think that we're, we're going to see if a free popcorn or these incentives if there are other companies that might offer, I don't know, a free T-shirt or um, a visit to a location, if it's a retailer or or an experience, um, I, I, it's it's definitely an interesting trend that's be- trend that's becoming more and more popular. I gotta say, in the normal times, <laughs> I I frequent AMC, not not infrequently, <laughs> like, and I have to also say that like it's just not that good of an experience. <laughs> the, the popcorn's not that good. <laughs> I don't see myself wearing an AMC shirt, but, you know, like... One man's view, one man's view. I know, one man's (laughs) view, especially when you compare it to, like, the Alamo that I go to in Brooklyn. It's just, like, a completely different experience. So, like, I I get all of it, and I think it also just does speak to, like, the moment of, of people being so cooped up for... For a year that even AMC starts to sound good, right, Carol? I mean, like, Carol, are you going to AMC this weekend? Uh, That's a no. (laughs) (laughs) Kat, are you going? I, well, it's, look, if I'm trying to... You might have some reporting to do, Pat. (laughs) I know. The point is, though, this story isn't over. And, like, that's the thing. As we watch the gyrations on a sometimes hourly basis in this stock, Kat, we have to remember that this story isn't over yet, just quickly. It it definitely is not. And I was, (laughs) I um, have woke up every single morning um, and... I know when there's some sort of when there's an active story going on, I can judge it by my inbox. And because of AMC, I have just I know every single time my alarm goes off. Well, here we go again. And it's 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 it seems like the same story, but it's not. It's just a development. That's Bloomberg's Kat Doherty and Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Wisdom Tree has a new fund. It's tracking advancements in biology. All that and more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Definitely a friend of the show. While he dropped by again, we're talking about Jamie Metzl. He's senior fellow over at Atlantic Council, former director on the U.S. National Security Council, the State Department, and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, founder and chair of the global movement, One Shared World. I got to say, his bio and background is just killer. Yeah, quite the resume for Jamie Metzl. Also, special strategist for Wisdom Tree, who leveraged data from Metzl and its construction of the Wisdom Tree Biorevolution Index and the Wisdom Tree Biorevolution Fund, an ETF targeting companies expected to be impacted by advancements in genetics and biotechnology. Listen, it's a strategy, Tim, that we've seen with Kathy Wood over at Ark Invest. This has been one of her verticals of looking at what's going on in the mapping of the genome and the impact it's really having on biotechnology and science at large. Yeah, and an incredibly hot space right now. Jamie joined us with more along with Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. The big issue is that we are, uh, we humanity, are at the earliest stages of a revolution that is already changing the way we do and think about healthcare. Uh, but this is like the equivalent of the early days of industrialization or the early days of the Internet uh, revolution, where the incredibly powerful tools of the genetics and biotechnology revolutions aren't just going to transform um, healthcare, uh, but these same capabilities 
um, will over time fundamentally transform a lot of other fields, including agriculture, materials, energy, uh, data storage. And so I've always thought that this was just an incredible investment opportunity. And then uh, last year, um, I somebody reached out to me, and it was Jeremy Schwartz. Jeremy, what was it about it that was so appealing to you guys? Well, you know, we've been doing a lot of investment around these big trends, what we're calling mega trends and, and growth opportunities. And I read Jamie's book. Actually, one of my friends uh, had highlighted it as, as something that he was doing some investing around. I read the book, and I was like, wow, these are, these are really big picture trends that's changing our lives. Um, and then I started thinking about how do we identify these companies on an ongoing basis? And I just reached out to Jamie and said, let's start the conversation. Are you interested in collaborating on something like this? We've been working with deep, thoughtful partners in this collaborative form, but you need to really know the space and know the cutting-edge technologies. Uh, and I view Jamie as this biology guru who really could help us guide the big picture, what are the important technologies, what are the important companies, and getting some collaboration from Jamie on identifying these technologies and companies uh, has, has, has been a really great experience here. So what's the data specifically behind the index that ultimately led to the ETF, um, Jamie? What was, what was it the data that was specifically used? Because I think, you know, when you're talking about things that can impact ag, materials, data storage, I mean, there's a lot there to unpack. Well, there's a lot there, but what we were looking at is uh, parts of all of these different sectors where these revolutionary tools of the genetics and biotech uh, revolutions were going to, to empower new business models, new ways of, of doing things. And, and one great example of this that's very intimate for Many of us are these mRNA vaccines. And so you and I, Carol, have mm -hmm. talked about this, the, the, the miracle of these mRNA vaccines. It's, they're very different from the polio vaccine, for example, which was a, a dead or attenuated version of the polio virus. What the mRNA vaccine is we are basically injecting new instructions to ourselves to produce something that otherwise our bodies can't produce, which is this, this spike protein. Uh, and then we have a natural immunological response. But that ability um, to kind of manipulate, in many ways, the code of life, it's, it, it, the mRNA vaccines aren't just about vac vaccines. This technology is a platform for thinking differently about how we treat all sorts of diseases um, uh, going future, including lots of cancers and possibly even Alzheimer's. But the mRNA technology also has huge implications for how we think about growing crops and disrupting the way we think about fertilizers. And I have to say, it reminds me a lot. I've been talking with Kathy Wood over at ARK Investments uh, for seven years since she kicked off her company, and she taps completely into the innovative space. She, in particular, has a, a fund that's just focusing on the genomic revolution, which was up 180% last year, about 40% before that. It's kind of treading a little bit of water in terms of performance um, this year. Your fund, though, the biotech and pharmaceutical exposure really is the bulk of the investments at this point. Are you concerned at all, though, that the run, you know, has kind of already happened? What makes you confident that it has the legs to keep going? Because your exposure even though it applies to a lot of the world, is still really concentrated in particular in that biotech um, space. There is a lot of excitement um, in, this, uh, in this space, but we are at the very earliest stages of this, as I was saying before, 
of this transformative revolution. That's Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, and Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at Atlantic Council. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Margaritaville takes Manhattan. That's right. Forget the New York state of mind. Jimmy Buffett's latest empire expansion and state of mind right here in New York City. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, the domestic cover story this week of Bloomberg Business Week, it is all about Jimmy Buffett and Margaritaville and Margaritaville Enterprises. It is now in New York City. It's at uh, the corner of 7th and 40th Street. And we are delighted to have with us right now Jimmy Buffett and his company's CEO. He is John Cohen. First of all, New York City, because you guys are around the country. You're also in the Bahamas. You're in Costa Rica. Why New York City and why now? Well, it's an island. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's going to be more than that. That's true. That's true. Well, Jimmy, uh, why New York, though? After all these years of doing this, why New York now? Well, why New York now? I guess we all we uh, there's a little bit of history involved with that fact of as a performer, uh, it always was said to me that uh, you had to you had to take New York no matter how popular were elsewhere in the country, and, and that was something that was difficult to do, but I took it as a challenge. But once you're here and you connect up, it's one of the most delightful places to be. And uh, I've had a summer home out on Long Island for a long time and was always coming into the city and got involved in musicals. And so, um, you know, and let's say I've frequented a few bars on this <laughs> island. And uh, I thought... Uh, when this all came together, you never really know how it all happens, but we've had enough magic uh, in turning this five-minute tune into a brand <laughs> that we just kind of we kind of follow the universe on where it takes us, and that's my take on it. I'm sure John's got another one. John, speaking of, yeah. that, speaking of that magic, how do you get this across the finish line, especially in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, well, it takes, a, as, Jimmy, as Jimmy always says, it takes a lot, of, a lot of people to help you. And we had great partners, including the city of New York. But, you know, I would say, well, New York obviously has an enormous number of visitors. There's really no resort in New York. So this gives people an opportunity to visit and go on vacation in Times Square. <laughs> well, talk to us about if we go and visit, because there's a lot of moving parts. There's bars, there's the resort, there's the hotel, of course. So give us an idea of kind of, if somebody visits, what are we gonna see? Well, you're gonna, first, first of all, you're gonna have fun. You're gonna walk in from one of the more frenetic towns in the world to, as Jimmy said earlier, an oasis. And you're gonna take a deep breath, and you have a drink, and you'll be able to see the Statue of Liberty without getting on a ferry, <laughs> and a fabulous show uh, designed by Jimmy to his music. Uh, then you'll come upstairs, and you'll have the choice of eight other bars, fantastic views. You'll feel a little bit like you're on a, on a cruise ship in your room, and then you get to go out to check out a bunch of other bars and a lot of wonderful food, retail opportunities, and I would say it's a real combination of entertainment and hospitality. 
Well, I, I do think that a lot of us could use a deep breath and a, a drink right now and a vacation as we do hopefully <laughs> soon get to the other side of this pandemic. Jimmy, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about what you did during the pandemic, how you got through it and, and, and what you did from a creative perspective. Well, it was, you know, if you, if you look at it, the way I looked at it uh, in, in world history, nobody's ever stopped fun completely. <laughs> And uh, that that basically happened now, and I think that's, you know, it's entertainment and it's creativity that is that thin layer that keeps us from going back to being as tribal as as, as some people are these days. And it and and fun is part of of life, and I was brought up that way and raised that way down on the on the Gulf Coast and the and the, you know. And the, and the remnants of the French Empire in Louisiana and laissez bon ton roulet was something my grandmother and grandfather uh, taught to their children and I taught to mine. So fun has always been there. And the thing of it is, uh, the other little known secret is uh, the tri-state area has, has been an incredible uh, place for our, our you know, diehard long-term fans. Uh, and I've, I've been playing here for 40 years. I mean, Jones Beach is like playing Florida to me, you know, as far as friends. So there are a lot of parrot heads in the tri-state area. So, of course, tourism is one thing that New York hopefully will come back to. But, you know, I got to tell you, you know, I wrote that song about five minutes and I went and knocked on a door. It's on Duval Street in Key West to get a job. And I got one. And I played it there in a place called Crazy Ophelia. It's the first time in, I think, 1972. This is a lot different up here. <laughs> and I just, I just had that one. I just took that, that great, you know, it's almost you know, a light speed run from Duval Street, you know, to 7th and 40th Street and look at this place and go through what an incredible job they did. But I, always, I love the fact that when it was being built, uh, you know, I loved kind of hanging. I came in to see the building uh, process and talk to people that were building it. And the excitement from construction workers in New York. They were the nicest construction workers you'd ever want to see. And uh, it, it kind of emulates to the fact that everybody from, you know, from our partners yeah. in it, the, the financial partners, the people working here, there's, there's a real kind of sense of community and, and fun that we're having that uh, is pretty special even on this island. Well, I got to say, the Bloomberg audience likes to have fun too, but they're also a financial audience. And you guys have spent a few hundred million dollars to get this done, several years to get it done. And when it comes down to it, I mean, how long does it take to make it kind of a profitable venture? You guys know New York City is an incredible place to do anything, but it can also be a very difficult. And Times Square, I've seen a lot of restaurants, I've seen a lot of hotels open and close in the same year. I've seen a lot of Broadway shows <laughs> open and close in the same year. So what is it going to take um, to make it successful financially? And are you seeing already you know, well, demand in terms of rooms and people wanting to be there? Well, I think the first thing is that while there are a lot of hotels in Times Square, there's not a hotel in Times Square where you can jump in a pool 12 months a year. <laughs> Good point. So uh, it, it separates us, I think, uh, in a fairly material way. Um, and, and this is a very profitable business because um, uh, while it's fun to drink, it's also profitable to drink. And so um, one thing we've never had trouble with is, is, is demand and profitability. So um, 
we've learned from Jimmy, from his career, right. you know, deliver value. So long as you're creating fun for people and you're doing it at a fair price, our experience is that you yeah. do very well. Well, are you guys seeing already demand in terms of people wanting to come stay at the hotel? Can you give us any indication? Yes. Of what, or can you give us a, a little idea of, of what kind of demand you're seeing? Absolutely. The advanced bookings are very strong. Mm -hmm. Obviously, our timing, uh, which we didn't control, uh, the brilliance of American science did, uh, is fantastic. There's a lot of pent-up demand. You know, people haven't been able to have fun for a long time. And it's a bit of an allegory, really, for the comeback of not just New York, but America. Everybody could sure use a visit to Margaritaville. So one last question, guys. I have to say, in the lead up to this, Tim and I have been talking around the newsroom, like, we're going to interview Buffett. And they're like, Warren? And we're like, no, Jimmy Buffett, the other Buffett. You guys are actually friends, Jimmy. And I'm, <laughs> we're curious. Yeah. Did you guys, do you talk business with him? Do you talk investments with him? Do you drink margaritas with him? Like, I'm just curious <laughs> about that relationship. Um, yeah. I, uh, if, if you if you were a, a distant some maybe cousin of Warren Buffett, you'd call him too. <laughs> you know? and, and we've we've been friends for a long, long time. We were introduced by his uh, sister Doris to my mom when they went on a, uh, a, a, a genealogical kind of uh, trip. And that was the first time that she said, "You know, you ought to meet Warren. You ought to buy Berkshire." And that was like in 1972. And I did both. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Have you bought Bitcoin? And, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I know I know he, I know what Warren thinks about it, but uh, you know, it is uh, yeah. A little dabble in there doesn't do anybody any harm, you know. I, I think in the in the uh entertainment side of it is pretty interesting. I'm looking at how how you could uh tickets to me is an interesting thing of of how you could control Right. Maybe scalping it in the long run. You know, I, I don't see anybody that's done anything about it yet that has actually worked. But this this could be a possibility. That's what I'm kind of looking at. That's the Jimmy Buffett and John Colan, the CEO of Margaritaville. How much fun was that? That was awesome. Oh, uh, oh my God. Also, that what? story in Bloomberg Business Week, the cover story, it is so good. I had no idea that the Buffett brand was so big. It's a lifestyle, and that's what they're all about. And this whole idea, you get into this mindset, and then you want to continue to perpetuate it, essentially, if you're at home. I mean, they have a high-end basically drink mixer for making great margaritas. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. All about getting that next generation into it, too. Yep, got to get those younger guys to be parrot heads. All right, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend, everyone. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Well, be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It happens every Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. And if you missed any of these conversations or just want to hear the full conversations, do check us out online at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.